Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, June the 3rd, 2022, and I hope you're all well. Uh, as regular viewers of the show know, we spend a lot of time thinking about America, how to think about America, how to look at America, try to look at it slightly differently, askew originally, hopefully. Uh, a few days ago, I rewatched um, the great movie, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather Part 2. Uh, I don't want to turn this into a conversation about the Godfather, but I I was intrigued, uh, triggered my memory about the Godfather II's place of Cuba in the narrative. Uh, Cuba features very centrally in Godfather Part Two. Uh, Michael Corleone's visit, um, his embroilment accidentally, although of course symbolically in the revolution of 1959 against the American-backed regime, but above all else, the idea that in Cuba, real American business was being done, uh, all the mafia business, the mafia bosses were meeting and American corporate bosses were meeting in Cuba during the movie to do the real American business. So in an odd way, of Cuba might seem to be, at least in Godfather 2, a kind of mirror. This is particularly interesting in the context of our conversation today with Ada Farah. She's the author of Cuba, an American history. Um, it's not just another book. Uh, it's the winner of this year of the uh, Pulitzer Prize, quite a remarkable achievement. It's a wonderful book, and she's one of America's leading historians, not just of Cuba, but of the world. And I'm thrilled and honored that Ada is joining us today from her office uh, at New York University. Ada, welcome. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me on your show. So this is the second time we tried that. The last time we had some technical difficulties, as they said. Uh, so last time I brought up Godfather Part Two again. I wonder if you've been thinking about this a little bit as a as a kind of mirror, as a supplement, a footnote, perhaps to your book, uh, Cuba and American History, because that's the theme of your book, isn't it? That Cuba isn't standing alone. It's not just an island that happens to be offshore America, the United States. It's somehow intimately connected, embroiled, entangled in American history. Right, Andrew, that's one of the themes of the book. That's the main theme of the book, really, the way in which the U.S. and Cuba are so deeply entangled that it's impossible to tell the history of Cuba without taking into account the role of the United States in that history. And to some extent, the reverse is true, and Americans often don't realize the extent to which Cuba is a recurring presence in U.S. history. And the scene from The Godfather kind of um, touches on, on that in both directions, right? The, the U.S. business, uh, legal and illegal, is very present in Cuba. But at the same time, Cuba is central to the business interests of the United States. Um, the mafia first went into Cuba during Prohibition, uh, following Prohibition, when Americans couldn't you know, drink and sell uh, uh, alcohol in the United States. And Cuba became an important place for people to go as tourists and for uh, mobsters to begin transporting and transshipping liquor. So at almost every important turn 
in U.S. history, Cuba is somehow there. And that's just one example. There could be many, many others related to the history of the U.S. as an empire, the history of, of American slavery, uh, the history of the U.S. during the Cold War. Uh, in all those stories, Cuba is present. I want to get to slavery, which is, of course, probably the central fact and controversy in American history. But let's begin at the beginning, or supposedly at the beginning, with a man called Christopher Columbus, who you cover in your book, all the paradoxes, all the ironies of Columbus supposedly discovering America and Columbus's own relationship with the island of Cuba. How did Columbus, how is the history of Columbus and Cuba and the supposed discovery of, of the United States, how is that all connected, Ada? Well, in, in some ways, it's it's a very familiar story for American readers, right? That uh, Columbus arrived in the in the Caribbean, having thought that he found uh, the East Indies, and and thereupon inaugurated a an era of of conquest and indigenous genocide and and dispossession. And that story uh, is not just a Cuban story, not just a U.S. story. It's a, it's a story of the wider of the wider hemisphere. One of the things I note in the book is that Columbus actually, well, I, I never say he discovered, as you kind of point pointed out when you say so-called discovery. He didn't, you know, he arrived in the new world, but he didn't, he didn't discover it because the people who were there already knew it existed, right? But one of the things that I think is interesting for American readers to think about is the fact that Columbus actually never landed in what became the United States, right? He 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 made landfall in the Caribbean, uh, went to different islands of, of the Caribbean and explored the northern coast of, of South America as well, that whole region, but never made it up to Florida or anywhere on the on what became the U.S. side of the, of the Gulf of Mexico. So it's striking then that so many, that, that Columbus then later became kind of the habitual starting point for U.S. history. And in many 19th century histories of the new American Republic of the United States, those histories begin with Columbus. And then I ask, you know, I ask why? Why is it that a history that never occurred on U.S. soil became the starting point for U.S. history? And I think the answer to that question has much more to do with the 19th century than it does with Columbus himself. And that is that in the 19th century, American U.S. leaders were beginning to think about expanding and maybe taking parts of what had been the Spanish Empire. Uh, taking, you know, in, in a sense, seizing land that that originated from Columbus's um, arrival in the New World. So what they were doing, in a sense, is seizing a foreign history to make it theirs, thinking that at some point the land on which that history unfolded would be theirs too. It's 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 so layered with irony. It's almost as if uh, Ada, this could have been written. This history, your history, could have been written by a novelist. Perhaps uh, if there is a God, he he or she is uh, fictional rather than non-fictional. Um, this idea of America being founded, of course, um, against colonies, against empire, and then immediately becoming an empire is also intimately bound up in um in uh, in America's relationship with Cuba and Cuba's relationship with America. Uh, we're all prisoners, for better or worse, of geography in Cuba. And for those people watching, we have a map of, of Cuba, a couple of maps, one 
just of the island and one showing it in the context of the United States. Cuba is very much, for better or worse, a prisoner of its geography, just as America is. And I know you write about this in some detail in the book. Yeah, I mean, geography, a lot of people, you know, in the 19th century, before that, maybe even after that, believed that geography represented a kind of destiny. And uh, if you look at where Cuba sits on the map, you know, we're used to thinking about it as 90 miles from, uh, you know, before, below the, the coast of Florida. But it also sits really at the at the entrance of the of the Gulf of Mexico right so um, and that makes it that made its value to the United States um, in the early 19th century even more powerful because if you look at the map and locate New Orleans New Orleans was one of the major ports um, American ports in the 19th century and all the weed and food that was you know cultivated in the in the Mississippi River Valley, a lot of it went out the, po the port of New Orleans and out through the Gulf of Mexico and up, you know, to, to Europe, uh, up and across to Europe or up to the northern seaboard. And if you look at the map, Havana sits right, you know, right between, you know, Havana sitting there between Florida and, uh, and, um, and the Gulf, it sits right on the passage where those American ships would have had to cross. So American statesmen really believe that controlling Cuba would guarantee American commerce and American prosperity. And so you have, you know, if you almost every founding father, uh, starting with Jefferson, you know, on then later in the, you know, Madison, Monroe, um, Adams, all of them believed that a U.S. acquisition of Cuba was essential to the future of the republic. Uh, one of them said acquiring Cuba would, would fulfill the measure of our well-being. It will guarantee our political future. So, And that seems strange to Americans right now because Cuba doesn't seem that important. But given its location and given the trade that developed between the two, um, the two places, it was some people believed it absolutely, absolutely essential uh, to, the, to the United States. Yeah, it, it, it enforced the geopolitical realities, those Hamiltonian realities that America was supposedly founded against. I wonder in an odd kind of way if Cuba is to America what Ukraine is to Russia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people have been making that, you know, that analogy um, lately in a sense that um, where the U.S. for a long time believed that that the kind of the natural place of Cuba was was as part or as with or as a strong ally or a client state of the United States. And when uh, when Cuba stood against that, that created a, a crisis for the for the metropole for the U.S. And you know people have have noted that analogy with the present context um, in Ukraine. You talked earlier, uh, you mentioned uh, slavery in Cuba. What is the relationship between the origins of slavery in Cuba and in the United States? Are they bound up with one another? Are they in parallel? Did one lead to the other? Well, I wouldn't say that one led to the other. In some ways, uh, they were, you know, they emerged in parallel. Um, Slaves, you know, slavery existed in Cuba from the very beginning of the Spanish conquest, both African slavery and then uh, and also indigenous before that indigenous slavery. Uh, even though it existed from the, you know, from from the very beginning, it really takes off 
in the early 19th century uh, in Cuba. And that is because the Haitian Revolution occurs in what was the French colony of Saint-Domingue. And Saint-Domingue had been the world's largest producer of sugar. Uh, when its sugar industry um, collapsed as a result of the, of the revolution that ended up producing both the end of slavery and independence in Haiti, then Cuba kind of steps in to fill that role. And so Cuba is kind of a, a place where, where the plantation system and sugar and, and chattel slavery, though it exists for centuries, really you know, becomes the pillar of the society and of economy um, in, the, in the early 19th century. There's a parallel development in the US, right? Where there's, if you think of, of cotton um, in the US, it also develops in the, in the 19th century, um, about the same time as, as, as sugar slavery in Cuba does. So even though of course there'd been tobacco and other kinds of slavery in the US that, that part of the, you know, one of the most powerful US industries dependent on slavery, cotton really um, is part of the same um, seen in the same world as Cuban slavery later in the 19th century. The other yeah, way, to, yeah. Sorry, sorry, go on. Well, there's one other really interesting way in, that, that they're connected, and that has to do with the slave trade. You know, the American uh, government illegalized the slave trade beginning in 1808, the legal transatlantic slave trade to the United States, and Britain did as well at the same time. Now, a lot of people take that to mean that the transatlantic slave trade ended, but it didn't. Uh, it, it, it flourished, and Spain uh, illegalized the trade in 1820, but that didn't end it either. So actually more and more ca African captives arrived in Cuba after the slave trade was illegal than before. And in that illegal slave trade, American, uh, American business interests and traders and slavers and shipmakers and insurers were a central, central part of that illegal trade. E pretty late, like even on the eve of the Civil War, you had slave ships leaving New York City, the North, uh, going to the West Coast of Africa to capture and 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 uh, cap you know Africans, and then and then cross them, bring them across the ocean um, to Cuba. Uh, you mentioned um, the the insurgency against slavery. Uh, you're not only the author of uh, the, the Pulitzer Prize winning and Cuba in American history, your, your second book, Freedom's Mirror, Cuba and Haiti in the Age of Revolution, also has won a number of awards. I'm always curious, uh, are the, the, the histories of, I mean, your book, this new book about Cuba focuses on the Cuban relationship with America and there's mirrors of each other. But what about Haiti? I often get confused as someone who doesn't know much about this stuff between mm -hmm. these parallel histories of Haiti and Cuba. How similar are they? Particularly in terms of their insurgency yeah. against slavery and colonialization. Right. You know, those are those histories are also very entangled in a different way than than with the United States, in part because the United States is you know a very powerful nation, and the relationship between Cuba and the U.S. is so shaped by that American power. Whereas you know the same was not true of Haiti. So the the main way in which Haiti and Cuba are connected is that the Haitian Revolution in Cuba, right? That Haiti was. A, the most powerful slave economy in the world before the revolution. When the revolution happened, that system of slavery and, and, the, and plant, sugar plantation agriculture uh, collapses. And 
you know, Cuba, Cuba then becomes kind of a mirror to the Haitian, like a, a reverse, uh, uh, you know, an inverse uh, of what of what Haiti became. So if the Haitian Revolution produced freedom in Haiti, it actually helped strengthen unfreedom in Cuba. Right, because that's when slavery really takes off. That's when plantation production soars, uh, and so so you can say that it produces the opposite effect in Cuba. At the same time, you know the two places were really close, uh, Haiti and Cuba, and people in Cuba found out about what was going on in Haiti all the time. So one of the things I found in the archives is that enslaved people and free people of color talked about Haiti all the time and looked at it as a kind of example. Uh, and there were rebellions in which, you know, enslaved people and others talked about doing what people had done in, in Haiti. And they said, you know, taking the land and becoming masters of ourselves. So Haiti has this, you know, this unusual and very rich role in Cuba in that, on the one hand, it represents the entrenchment of slavery. And on the other hand, it represents the example of freedom for the enslaved. You present Cuba in, in some ways, particularly 19th century Cuba, as this symbolic stage, uh, this mirror of America. But sometimes it was more than symbolic. One of my favorite stories in the book is uh, about Franklin Pierce and William King, uh, not the best known American president and vice president, but yeah. there's a wonderful anecdote about those guys, which reflects on the centrality, both symbolically and, and literally of Cuba in 19th century America. Perhaps, uh, Eddie, you yeah. might yeah. Uh, tell us that one. Right. Yeah. No, that was, you know, I've been studying when I, I've been studying Cuban history for over 30 years. And when I first came across that anecdote and doing the research for the book, I was just shocked. You know, how could this be? And how could I never have heard this before? So the story is this, that in 1853, <clears throat> there's a, a new president and vice president of the United States, Franklin Pierce and William Rufus King. And uh, William Rufus King is uh, too ill. He has tuberculosis and can't attend the inauguration in Washington. He's not there. And he is instead on a Cuban sugar plantation in Matanzas, which is the, you know, the richest sugar region in Cuba at the time. It was a region that had a lot of American owned plantations. And he's there um, doing something that at the time was called taking the sugar cure in which uh, you know, the, the, the sick person was supposed to sit in the mill, you know, in the mill and in the boiling house as the sugar was being um, processed uh, as the cane was being turned into sugar, uh, boiling sugar juice. And he was supposed to sit there and breathe in all the fumes and the heat. And that was supposed to cure him of tuberculosis. Uh, it didn't work. He ended up dying. But before he died, he got permission from Congress to take his oath of office as vice president of the United States on, on foreign soil on this Cuban sugar plantation. So on a Thursday in the middle of harvest, you know, on the highest point on the plantation, uh, in front of the American consul and witnesses, William Rufus King became vice president of the United States, even though he was on a Cuban sugar plantation at the time. And, you know, again, it's just such a startling story. And it felt to me like, it, so I decided to start a chapter, one chapter uh, with that. And it's a chapter that's about slavery. And so you know, in some ways, by starting with him, 
it's a way of putting the U.S. Uh, into the story of slavery in a way that's memorable for readers. It kind of implicates the U.S. in the story of Cuban slavery. Uh, King himself was a, a slave, a slaveholder and plantation owner uh, from Alabama, and you know, so he would have been sitting on this American-owned plantation. The people, the enslaved people that he was watching work all around him, uh, many of them would have come on these. Uh, you know, that was in the 1850s. It was the height of the illegal slave trade to Cuba, so they would have come on these illegal voyages. Many of them. Um, on American-built ships with American financing, etc. So it shows the connection between the two places. And finally, in the 18, you know, the late 1840s and early 1850s was when um, annexationism, the drive to turn Cuba into slave states as part of the U.S. as you know, as slave states, was at its peak. And there were these expeditions that were meant to rest Cuba from Spain declare its independence, and then immediately attach it to the U.S. All that was unfolding at the same time. So to me, it seemed like having an American vice president take his oath of office in Cuba, in a sense, kind of marked Cuban Cuba as imminent American territory. People, Many people fully expected it to become part of the U.S. as a slave state or two or three slave states at the time. Probably it was more convenient for the American mafia of political or otherwise from for Cuba to remain independent in uh, we, we began with the Godfather and the Godfather the the bad bad guy in the Godfather Hyman Roth um, Jewish gangster uh, who eventually uh, uh, Michael Corleone assassinates was very much intimately connected again in fictional terms with uh, Batista Zaldivar, who was the Cuban dictator that, uh, the American-backed dictator, the kind of American Pinochet, I guess, in a way, who um, Castro eventually overthrew. Um, the revolution of, of, of 1959, uh, Ada, how, how does this fit in? I mean, of course, it wasn't inevitable, but it's it's yeah. hardly surprising, is it, given given the exploitative nature, was it essentially, was Castro's revolution a revolution against America? No, not, not in the beginning. So um, you know, it all depends on how you define Castro's revolution or the revolution of 1959, because what it became was not what it was in the beginning. And uh, for even before Castro came on the scene in the 1930s, there was an, another revolution. There were social movements and progressive movements that had that had talked about forging a new relationship between Cuba and the United States, a more equal relationship. So already, a kind of uh, you know critique of American empire was a very much a part of Cuban politics before Castro came on the scene. Castro didn't invent that. But the revolution as, you know, the struggle for power in the 1950s was less focused on that than simply on removing Batista. Batista came to power illegally in a coup in 1952. And much of the, you know, and, and the, the movements against him, which became really strong in the mid-1950s and then the late 1950s, were, were basically, you know, they weren't communist. Actually, the, the Communist Party did not, did not support Fidel Castro until very close to his victory. 
so they weren't communists. They weren't expressly anti-American. They were mostly focused on ousting an illegal dictator, Batista, and on restoring the 1940 Constitution, which was a progressive, very highly regarded constitution um, at, at the time. And so that was really the focus of, of, you know, of the many, many men and women who became involved in the struggle against Batista. Now, of course, once you know, Castro takes power. He said, and he said this repeatedly in the beginning, he said, basically, this time the revolution is for real. There had been other revolutions and they had been thwarted, right? Which is uh, a very, uh, that, that, that could have come out of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez or something. Yeah, no, it's a great, he was- it's a very Latin American thing to yeah. say. Yes, the revolution, the revolu you know. This, this time, time the revolution is for real, is it? Yeah, or th this time, time before it, it was. What he said was, this time, the, the, what did he say? This time it really is a revolution, or this time the revolution <laughs> is really a revolution. And what that meant was that, uh, and there were signs of this even before he, you know, before he came to power, that, that maybe restoring the constitution of 1940 wouldn't have been enough, right? That maybe ousting Batista wouldn't have been enough. If you wanted, for example, agrarian reform was very was a very popular um, goal in, in progressive circles and in mainstream circles in Cuba, really. But then how do you enact an agrarian reform that limits land, large land holdings and distributes land to, the, to peasants and to workers when so much land is American owned? Does that mean that even even a you know forget a communist agrarian reform right? But even even a, a, a progressive moderate one would have inevitably clashed with U.S. interests, and that's what begins to happen once the revolution begins to enact policies like the like the land the agrarian reform. So some so American uh, property is confiscated, utilities are nationalized, a lot of those are American owned. And so on. So immediately, you you begin to get that conflict with the United States. And really, you know, it didn't take long. Castro came to power in January '59. By November of 1959, Eisenhower is already uh, agreeing that this that this this government is not to the U.S.'s liking, and that the U.S. should work covertly to bring in a government more in keeping with U.S. interests. So that, We're back to the 19th century, essentially, aren't we, Arden? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, once the revolution takes power and it begins enacting the agrarian reform and it begins getting closer to the Soviet Union, a lot of American statesmen are basically repeating lines from the late 19th and early 20th century, right? There's the Spanish-American War in 1898 in which Spain, oh, sorry, in which the U.S. defeats Spain, uh, which the Cubans had already been fighting against for 30 years. And so Americans had this idea that they had, they had secured Cuban independence for the Cubans. And of course, Cubans didn't think of it that way. They thought that actually that the Americans intervened in that war right when they were on the verge of victory and they had kind of stolen uh, in their, their victory from them. Here's so again, it, this, it's so... I wouldn't say fictionalized, but it could have been written as a novel. Yeah. And it's all about memory. We did a show with Colette Brooks. I don't know if you know her. She's an excellent American essayist. She has a new book out last year. It was called Trapped in the Present Tense, Meditations on American Memory. A lot of it's about JFK. And of course, with Castro, we get to JFK and this inability right. to forget, this 
trapped in the present tense in yeah. America uh, yeah. about Cuba. And we get, of course, to the Bay of Pigs, which um, you, I know you cover in some detail in the book. What does the Bay of Pigs tell us about Cuba as an American history, especially given that it was orchestrated by JFK, supposedly the most progressive American president of the 20th century, amongst the most progressive? Yeah, well, you know, the Bay of Pigs, it didn't, the Bay of Pigs invasion didn't start out as the Bay of Pigs invasion. It was not originally going to be a full-scale invasion. It was not originally going to happen at the Bay of Pigs. But, you know, uh, sorry, plans change. And uh, there's a, a, an American psychologist who came up with the term groupthink for kind of dysfunctional decision-making in large groups. And he used uh, the Bay of Pigs is a case study in the perils of groupthink. And, you know, when you when you read about people who read the book and read that chapter or read some of the original sources, it becomes so clear uh, that that was that that was. It's almost as if the Bay of Pigs could be a, <clears throat> a, a the political or geopolitical version of an American car designed by committee. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's just the whole thing was there were so many mistakes made. Right. That. You know, it's almost, I mean, you talk about how it could be, it's fiction, you know, it's, it reads like a novel. You could almost, you know, it do, this does, this part also, to me. Another farce. I mean, it, it's Dr. Strangelove, Dr. Strangelove goes to Cuba. Yeah. So they, you know, for, so to give you a few examples, so they picked the, they picked this region. This was one of the poorest regions of Cuba where the only industry or the main industry is charcoal. And a lot of the people in that area had been given land titles by the new government. The new government had built new roads. It was in the process of building a new tourist um, on, you know, little tourist enclave, a beach resort. And the Americans, uh, you know, they arrive and they're rowing, you know, they're steering this, this boat to set up the landing gear and the landing lights. And there's a party going on where they're going to land because the tourist resort is soon to open and the construction is almost over and the construction workers are having a huge party. And so they, you know, it's just gives you, you know, it, it just captures perfectly this idea that, that no invasion can land on an empty beach, right? Literally the beach was not empty. There were, uh, you know, there were these workers there and they were militia members and they were literacy workers there who saw the, uh, the invaders arrive. But it's also, it's, it's not just a, a literal truth in that case, it's also a metaphorical truth. And that is that no, land, is, land is never empty. It has, uh, it has a history. And the history of that place showed that, um, you know, the, the, the Americans couldn't will away that history, right? That the, this was a, an area that was poor, where yeah. the revolution was popular where Castro had celebrated his first Christmas in power. Castro had gone there for New Year for a Christmas Eve dinner and celebrated it with charcoal workers, you know, showing up with the with the pig uh, to roast, right? So, I mean, you know, an American somehow um, missed all this. Yeah, um, I love your idea, Ada, of, of, of willing away history. I think the, the surreal nature yeah, of this relationship is that if, if America didn't exist, Cuba would have to invent it. And if Cuba didn't exist... Yeah. America would have to invent yeah. it. Let's fast forward to some headlines I found this week. Uh, the uh, foreign minister apparently of Cuba said that Cuba is not ready to sacrifice, and we use that word in inverted commas, socialism. Very briefly, you've studied this, and you're, I think, as, about as unbiased as, as most historians are. What are the achievements of Castro's socialism? 
Where is Cuba today in contrast with 1959? Has the revolution, as it's presented at least in the United States in mainstream media, has it been a complete failure? Or um, especially in comparison with other parts of the Caribbean and Latin America, can we view it with, with, with some degree of success? I mean, it's got a, it's, it's definitely a mixed legacy. And part of it depends on, on, on when and if you stop the clock, right? So uh, in terms of, of, of things that it accomplished, I mean, one thing is it, it, that it, it developed a, a, a new relationship with the United States that, was, that really emphasized Cuban sovereignty in a way that I think most Cubans had been wanting for a really long time. And that's really important. Of course, it's an island in the Caribbean, so it couldn't survive then without, you know, without um, the Eastern Bloc in the in the context of the Cold War, and so that ushered in all all kinds of new problems. And then when the Soviet when the Soviet Union collapsed, that kind of that showed um, how fragile uh, Cuban stability, economic stability was, right? So in some sense, it could not achieve. A full sovereignty the way that that it had uh, promised to uh, early on, you know. People tout the um, the achievements in education and healthcare, and and those are are really important. Of course, you know, free free education and free healthcare. Cuba came up with uh, multiple vaccines against COVID that have been successful and have you know, and and the, and the government has. Has vaccinated most of the of its population with its own vaccine, which is which is actually an incredible achievement. It has sent doctors to fight against Ebola and and in Africa during during that crisis. Uh, the problem is, though, that that for many Cubans, there doesn't seem to be hope for things improving. So the economic situation is very difficult as a result of its own policies and exacerbated by the US embargo. And they don't see a way, you know, a way to thrive. And so what's happening now, especially among young people, is that young people want to leave. Um, and this year there have been, I, 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 I think that by the end of April, there had been about 113, 115,000 Cubans who arrived in the U.S. through the U.S. at, at the U.S.-Mexico border? Um, so that's about one percent of the Cuban population. That is comparable to the migration crises of Mariel in 1980, which was a, a, a great blow to the Cuban government. It's uh, greater than the 1994 rafter crisis, uh, which was another um, critical. Um, point in, in the history, of, in, the, in recent Cuban history, right? So, so that, in some sense, the fact that so many people want to leave, and especially that young people want to leave, um, is, is an indictment, I think. Yeah, and in an odd way, perhaps Cubans, like Americans, are trapped, to borrow some language from yeah. Colette Brooks, trapped in the, uh, the present tense. Certainly the Americans are, uh, when it comes to thinking about Cuba. It's rather like struggling to figure out a difficult relative. Obama, of course, tried to chart a new course. Trump, as always, hit Cuba with new sanctions. Yeah. Joe Biden has tried to, I think, in a sense, split the baby. And yeah. uh, as Joe Biden tends to do, splitting the baby has just resulted in a bloody mess. Yeah. Um, 
why can't America make up its mind about its relationship with Cuba? What does that have to do? Well, you know, I feel like in some sense it has, other than Obama, I think it has made up its mind. I think that with Biden, Biden, you you say splitting the baby, and I see your point, but I think he's actually closer to Trump on this than he he is to Obama, ironically. Wow, interesting. Uh, I mean, in different language and for different uh, reasons, but uh, which is pretty pretty disgraceful, really. Given, yeah, I mean, given Trump's record you know, on this, one thing that um, I mean, he's not nearly as harsh as, as as Trump, but I think he's listening to conservatives on the hardliners on the question. If you look at the Democratic Party platform in 2020, it did not list uh, eliminating the U.S. embargo on Cuba as a goal. Whereas recent, like under Obama, and I think even in 2016 under with Clinton. Uh, that was part of the Democratic Party platform. It wasn't under Biden. So I don't think that that was his goal to begin with. And that's really unfortunate because, you know, I, I get frustrated when people, you know, people like Marco Rubio or Bob Menendez or, um, talk about how Obama's policy didn't work, that engagement didn't work. It's, it's clear that engagement didn't work. But, you know, certainly a hardline stance hasn't worked. That's been the policy for over 60 years with the, you know, with the exception of two years under Obama. And that certainly hasn't worked. It's only it's given the Cuban government an excuse for its own failures, as Obama rightly said. And also it's isolated the U.S. from Latin America and the world on this. Right. No one, no other country except Israel uh, generally supports the U.S. embargo on Cuba. So it's uh, which is pretty shameful. Yeah, really. I mean, so basically- I mean, of all, all the partners to have on that one. What about you? you you've written about the San Isidro uh, movement as potential for change within domestic um, Cuba. What what is this movement, uh, Ada? Yeah, so um, it's one of many dissident movements in Cuba. They tend to be small. Uh, they it's it's hard to organize. This you know the state the state has a. Uh, a very effective uh, system of, of repression against against dissidents. So that was a group mostly of artists, many of them uh, Afro-Cuban, who began organizing when the Cuban government a few years ago made it harder for artists to produce independent art. So the idea was they, they passed a decree that um, that that required that artists who were going to exhibit something or do a performance had to have permission from the government. So it severely limited artistic freedom. And so this group started organizing against that and doing, you know, uh, you know, unauthorized performances and exhibits and alternative uh, uh, exhibits outside of government space. And, uh, and th- they were very vocal. They used social media really well, YouTube, et cetera. And they were just, they were getting harassed uh, by very vocal, you know, very visibly, and by the by the Cuban government, and some of that they broadcast some of that on the internet. Anyway, so in November of 2020, is that right? I forget my years with the pandemic. In November of 2020, uh, there was a protest in in front of the, that they started, but then other Cuban artists and young, mostly young people joined. Uh, and they did that in front of the Ministry of Culture, basically calling for dialogue and exchange and um, that that didn't happen. There were the protests last summer in July, and that was not organized by the San Isidro movement, but some of them then joined when it happened. But the government, and, and those protests, I don't know if you r- remember, they were, 
they were unprecedented in revolutionary Cuba. They occurred in about 50 locations across the island uh, by ordinary people. And they were mostly peaceful, not, not always. And the, the government acted really um, efficiently and promptly and, um, and brutally against them. And many of them, about a thousand, I think were imprisoned. Some of them are still in prison. The, the trials have been going on over the last couple of months and even very young people like 16 years are getting long sentences for throwing rocks and, uh, or just for, for participating and walking uh, or carrying a sign that, you know, that was, um, that just said Liberty for instance. So, um, so, so that, so that's where the protests stand. They, some of them tried to, uh, to mount another protest this past November and that didn't happen. And I think that's part also of what's driving uh, the exodus. Um, a lot of those, many of the dissidents who participated in, in, in that are now, um, they're either in jail or, or they're abroad, uh, many of them. And, uh, um, a couple of quick things before we end. Uh, we did a show with a, a young travel writer last year, Jordan Salamar, on journeying through Colombia's Magdalena River. Wonderful book, wonderful conversation. He, he has a new book out, Every Day the River Changes, Four Weeks Down the Magdalena. It's really a book about environmental destruction. I wonder, given America's role in the destruction of the environment and the centrality of that in American politics, what's the history or this, this sort of mirrored history of environmental decay and exploitation in Cuba? Uh, and how does that play in to uh, your book about Cuba as an American history? Yeah, well, a lot of the, um, some of the worst environmental uh, effects related to the U.S. have to do with sugar, right, which produced um, massive deforestation and you know it was it was in a sense you especially in the late uh 19th and early 20th century american involvement in sugar meant you you could almost follow the expansion of sugar across the island of cuba from west to east and you can see you know you can see the trees falling down to, to make room for them uh a lot of you know the the really large uh enormous estates were american owned in the east and and and, and had that that result. So, so the U.S. is part of that story of deforestation and and environmental uh, decay. It's interesting. More re most more recently, during the special period, when you know this is the period, the name given to the period after the fall of the Soviet Union, where Cuba lost access to a lot of Soviet oil and and petroleum and didn't have cars or buses or machinery there was actually people scientists you know recorded kind of the the way that some coral reefs kind of bounced back and 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 the environment improved in the wake of those of those changes and that's still the case now because there's still shortages in um in all those things so let's end with speculating the future. Uh, my old friend uh, Moises Naim has been on the show a few times. I'm sure you're familiar with him, the former economics minister of Venezuela, now very distinguished political analyst. He has a new book out, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. He writes, of course, about Trump and Erdogan and Putin and Xi, but also, and, and particularly, I think, about Venezuela and the, this new authoritarianism in Latin America. Could we in the future see 
a Chavez style authoritarianism, perhaps a left authoritarianism in Cuba again in the in 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 the next twenty or thirty years. Is that the most likely populism? Hard to say, you know. You're asking a historian. I think. Well, that, historians right. are always best on the future. On the future. You know, you know I, that. I think that actually there's there's just as much a chance of a right authoritarianism. Yeah, and the difference between right and left authoritarianism, especially in Latin America, is sort of often hard. Yeah. To so I think uh, I think that you know, depending on, there's a way in which this this stasis could continue, right? That in a sense, people in Cuba right now are focused mostly on leaving, right? So that's, so you could see a scenario in which people, you know, try to survive, try to get by, try to leave, and things just kind of hobble along. Uh, it's not very, a very dramatic ending, but I could see that happening, that being, you know, the next 10 years. Um, and then if, if not, um, yeah, then if, if, yeah, I think that's the likeliest in the next. So we're going to be, Edda, we're going to be continually trapped in the present tense. Your, your, your Pulitzer Prize winning book, An American, uh, Cuba and American History, is a wonderful read, erudite, articulate, entertaining. Congratulations on the book Thank and the you. Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it's a real honor to talk, and, and I hope we'll have you on again to talk about Cuba. Any other books that you're reading these days, Edda, in addition to? Your stuff on Cuba? Anything um, catching your fancy? Well, let's see. What have I? Uh, right now, I'm reading a, a a really wonderful novel, but it has nothing to do with Cuba or anything else. So it has to do, it's called The Historian. But it's not a new novel. Elizabeth Kostova. It's about archives and vampires, mm. and it's just a great, fun uh, read. And then um, I would recommend a book by a colleague of mine who also just won the Pulitzer. I'm just starting that, and that's really good. Uh, it's called uh, Covered with Night, about indigenous justice in America in the 18th century. And Who's uh, it by? Nicole Eustace. Okay. Well, you'll have to introduce me. I'd yeah, like to get Nicole on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'd recommend that. And those are the two things that I'm reading right now. 